if you can get people believing in that sort of an opportunity set, great, fantastic. Now you can make that investment. The other option is just throw your money at Google and Facebook and let the rest of us have these awesome, high-performing, but hard-to-measure channels because it's really nice not having competition. <laughs> Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Marketing Revisited. My name is Lee Maroney. I am your host, and on this podcast, I talk to the smartest marketers I know, one topic at a time, to learn what's new, what's changed, and what you need to leave behind to be a better marketer. And today, I had the distinct pleasure of talking to someone who needs no introduction in the marketing community, and someone I have looked up to for a very long time, Brand Fishkin, the CEO and co-founder of SparkToro. We talked about everything audience research. It was a great episode. I hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Rand, thank you very much for joining. How are you doing? Very well, Liam. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm glad. I know we we had a couple of almost happened and then moved it and then eventually we made it work. So here we are. We are finally doing it and I couldn't be more excited about it. Likewise. So, yes. So where I would like to begin is the topic for this episode is revisiting audience research. And audience research is one of those things, particularly in B2B marketing, where it feels like Either people are claiming they're doing it and they're doing something completely different to it, Mm. or they're not doing it at all because they believe it's prohibitively expensive. And somewhere in the middle is the truth of what it actually means to research your audience. And I'd love to just start there at the very highest level of when you think about audience research, what does that actually mean to you as a marketer? Yeah, I mean, so let's say if you're an entrepreneur, right, which, um, you know, I happen to be as well. Right. One of the things that you try and do is you attempt to understand your customers and potential customers and, and the market that you're serving so that you can make products or services that fit their needs, that are likely to get traction, that are likely to be talked about and amplified, that are going to bring you a decent profit margin, blah, 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 blah. And audience research is essentially the same thing, but for marketing as the product. Right. So the, the, the product is I want to go out and reach the people who I need to reach with a message that will resonate in the places where they already pay attention and in ways that will get them to take the action I'm looking for. That, that's marketing 101. That's not even marketing 101. That's the dictionary definition of marketing. Right. And in order to do that, well, you need a deep understanding of the group of people you're attempting to influence and persuade. That's what audience research is. It can encompass a wide variety of tactics. For most uh, marketers, they don't do it at all, or they do one very tactical thing. For example, in the the field I used to be in, Liam, um, was search engine optimization, right, Mm -hmm. with my old company, Moz. And in that field, almost exclusively the, the, the entire research process involved keyword research. So let me go mm-hmm. to whatever, Google or Moz or, or my AdWords tool or Ahrefs or something like that. And I'll go plug in some keywords that I think are relevant to my audience. I'll see what other ones come up and how many people search for them. Technically, that is a kind of audience research, right? You're trying to understand what people are searching for. It's not... Uh, typically very well done or comprehensively done. It's often, it often misses a ton of things, um, things people have passive interest in, things people follow and pay attention to. But regardless, 
you know, it's, it's that kind of tactical thing. And then the other thing a lot of folks do is surveys and interviews, which I think are great. They should be part of your audience research process. I don't, um, I don't think anyone should be doing audience research without that. Uh, but it is terrible at answering certain kinds of questions. So for example, like, um, if you were to survey a whole bunch of chemical engineers, uh, and you ask them, hey, what podcasts do you listen to? And which websites do you visit? And what industry conferences do you go to? Which email newsletters do you subscribe to? You might get mildly decent answers to like the top two or three in the field for email and maybe conferences or, or sorry, um, yeah, for websites and conferences. But probably you're not going to get a very comprehensive set and statistically speaking, the results are going to be poor and biased by all kinds of things. Um, what you really want to do uh, is is get passively collected data at scale, right? So let me go find 10,000 chemical engineers and let me go find their Twitter feed and their, their Facebook pages and their LinkedIn and their YouTube and their Reddit and then like go look at all the things that they actually follow and then add them together and, and do some aggregation and calculation. That, that's the kind of audience research that SparkToro helps with. It's not the only kind, but we think it's uniquely valuable and should be layered on to audience research anytime you have those kinds of statistical questions. Yeah, yep. And I, I think of anytime I've come in where I've been running a marketing team, starting a marketing team, very often what seems to happen at the B2B side is even in a good scenario, you stitch together a series of things that you learn from the sales team where they'll say, okay, yep, this is this is who the people that buy it. These are the other people involved in the sales process. The customers will, CS team will tell you what happens on the CS side. And then somewhere in the middle, you've stitched together the very specific version of who buys the product and how they buy the product. But then you miss everything that happens around sort of holistically where they spend their time, how they get information, how they actually make decisions, who they trust to get information from. Yeah. And that that's the bit where I think that's where the marketing happens, essentially. Well, I mean, one of the problems for sure is over the last 20 years, Facebook and Google have convinced a tremendous number of marketers to just outsource all the targeting to them, right? So, you know, uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we would go to an ad agency, right? And you talk to the ad agency and they'd have all these, you know, sheets of data about the publications in a field, right? So they'd say, oh, chemical engineers. Okay, got it. And the, then they, you know, go through their stacks of info. And, Aha, all right. We found that, you know, these two trade publications, these three magazines, these four journals, uh, this newspaper in this city, this, you know, these are the ways to reach chemical engineers. This is what they're going to pay attention to. And you'd, you'd overpay massively because the targeting was poor, right? But generally speaking, that whole practice of what media can I reach my audience through was a, you know, a core part of the ad agency offering. And then in the digital marketing world, it just became, well, why don't we just use Google's programmatic solution? Why don't we just let Facebook do the targeting for us, right? We, we tell them, yeah, yeah, I want to reach chemical engineers, or this is my Facebook page, and they recommend audiences to us. And then we'll just pay and hope for the best. And gosh, Facebook sure does make it look like the metrics are going up and to the right. So we must be doing well, right? Let's just keep paying them. 
And I think now finally there's like um, a good number of marketers, especially the last five, 10 years as the, as the stories have come out about all the wasted spend in advertising um, and misappropriated dollars in digital and fraud and all these other things. Uh, now there's folks who are like, oh, maybe I should do this myself. Maybe I can get better results if I do it myself. And you know, spoiler alert, oh my God, you can definitely get better results if you do it yourself. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because there is a bit of a misnomer that the ability to know where you can target accurately is somehow research of your audience. Well, I can't search on a job title level on Facebook anymore because they don't allow that, but I can still do it on LinkedIn. Therefore, I know I can safely reach my audience on LinkedIn, which is not the same as understanding them, just where you know you can accurately serve them advertising. And then, of course, like you said, on things like Facebook, they add on the, well, you can A-B test up to 10 different variations and you'll find out which of these subject lines that you've done is the one that's going to resonate the most. Boom, you now understand your audience, which is, of course, you understand which version of the algorithm got the highest click-through rate and that's about as far as you got. Yeah. And, and spend a great amount of money in the process of doing so. Yeah, yeah. There's there's all sorts of trickiness around that, right? So, you know, Facebook's incentive obviously is to show you attribution, uh, not marginal contribution. Meaning, you know, what, what Facebook wants to do is basically say, okay, we think that eventually this group of people uh, probably will buy Liam's product. So let's go show the ad to that group, whether they click on it or not, because then we'll get a view through conversion and we'll be able to take credit for the fact that these people who eventually bought from you, eventually clicked through to you, eventually became part of your audience, whatever it is, came from us. Google has the same right incentive structure. And so you get a ton of folks who, like I mentioned, over the last five or 10 years have shut off massive portions of their advertising and seen no difference in conversions or very, very small shrinkage, right? 5%. I think Airbnb was the famous case from, you know, from last year where it was like, you know, they cut their spend by 90% and they saw like a four or 5% drop. Um, and they went, wait a minute. So we were paying all of that for nothing, just for, for attribution, right? For Facebook and Google taking credit, mm -hmm. not for actual sales that wouldn't have happened without them. And this is, I think, a huge problem. Marketers, CMOs especially, have been trained by their CEOs and executive teams over the last 20 years of internet marketing that they have to prove their case right? Every dollar you spend has to be attributable. So if you're going to spend 50 bucks on PR, you better prove to me how it's bringing us a customer. And of course, PR is a channel. It's so hard to prove, almost impossible to prove. You can show lift, you know, you can show some metrics around like, hey, we got all these nice brand mentions and yada, yada. But basically you have to, you've got to be a believer. There's, there's no, there's no other way. You can't attribute PR you and I are doing a podcast right now. Maybe someone who's listening to this podcast is like, oh, this, this kind of SparkToro thing sounds interesting. And they go to SparkToro.com and they sign up for the free version. And maybe you know, a couple of months later, they're like, I, I really need to upgrade to the paid version. And I will never be able to attribute that. Never. Not in 100 years could I ever say, oh, by doing uh, Liam's show, I got that customer. Nope. Impossible. Facebook and Google are phenomenal at being able to say, we showed this IP address, this person, this logged in user that we can track your ad 
and they later became your customer because you've got the you know analytics connected up. So therefore, that's where you should spend your money with us. Don't do podcasts. Don't do PR. Stop doing content marketing. Why are you doing organic SEO? You can't track any of that stuff. Just spend your dollars with us. Extraordinarily effective. Um, they have you know taken ninety percent plus of all uh, digital marketing spend is in advertising. So there you go. I'm glad you mentioned the attribution piece because that's that I think is possibly where I've certainly been guilty of this, where I've chosen the path of most measurability as opposed to most influence. So when you're doing audience research and you're identifying where your audience is spending time, and let's say, you know, we're talking to B2B marketers and somewhere way, way, way down to the bottom of the influence list is this podcast. And you say, that sounds interesting, but that's a challenge. How could I possibly measure that? How do you how do you overcome that gap of saying, well, that's where they may be listening, but that's not where I'm going to be able to insert a call to action with the UTM stitched onto it? Yeah. So uh, uh, I have sort of two answers. One is either you need to A, convince your self, team, boss, manager, whatever, executive function that uh, these sorts of serendipitous, hard to measure marketing channels are worthy of significant investment, and you'll be able to show um, impossible to attribute, but you can show lift, right? You can show brand lift. So you can show things like, hey, we did a, we ran a podcast campaign over the last six months. You can see what we predicted our, you know, based on year over year traffic trends and, and growth what our search volume for branded terms, our company name and the, the, the names around our products, that kind of stuff, what that should have been. And look, we had a lift of about 8% over that. I think we can reasonably attribute that to the podcast campaign we ran over the last six months. So, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that, is, that is doable. You can even in your analytics say, hey, the podcast episode was released this week. Look at the spike the day it was released. That, that tells us there's, there's something there. Now, are all of those people absolutely for sure 100% listening to the podcast episode? No, we don't know. We can't prove it. There's no way to know, but we can definitely see lift. So, so if you can get people believing in that sort of a, a an opportunity set, great, fantastic. Now you can make that investment. The other option is just throw your money at Google and Facebook and let the rest of us have these awesome, high-performing, but hard-to-measure channels because it's really nice not having competition. <laughs> Right? I mean, compelling. If, if everybody believed in this, if everybody knew and understood how these sort of serendipitous, hard to measure channels, hard to attribute channels worked, there'd be a tremendous amount more investment in them. You know, there'd be way more people getting, you know, whatever, podcast hosts getting pitched and YouTube channels getting filled up and people doing organic social and doing lots of content marketing and doing tons of PR and doing event marketing and webinars, all this stuff. But because they're hard to measure, only a few small, you know, small, very savvy marketers believe in it um, and, and their teams that, that allow them to do it. And so it's really an uncrowded space. It is shockingly easy compared to and, and high ROI as a result compared to these other kinds of channels. That is a compelling argument. It's interesting. The way we're talking right now, it, it kind of almost makes this like presupposition that you've got content, you now just need to put it in and find where it's going to go. But I think it's fair to say that audience research is also a way to identify the kinds of content that you should be creating and not just, I have an ad, where can I best stick it? 
No, no. I So I think um, a huge part of audience research that you do, and some of this is on the statistical side, right? So like, you know, I can go to SparkToro, I can look at hashtags that my audience is using, I can look at words and phrases that, you know, appear in their whatever tweets and LinkedIn posts and Instagram posts. I can look at, um, you know, words in their bio, all that kind of stuff, which is useful. I can get some good ideas from that. But honestly, Liam, I like surveys and interviews for that. I really, really do. I think interviews are a phenomenal way to kind of dig in, ask people those questions, and then be like, oh, okay, I'm getting to the deep part of what you're thinking about. Not the keywords you're searching for, not the words you're posting in your social, but a deep understanding of why you're interested in a problem and what resonates with you about it, why it's painful for you. And so now I can create content whatever that content might be, a, a, I don't care, a tweet, a LinkedIn post, a video, a TikTok, a YouTube channel, an interview with another podcast, um, a, 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 a big data journalism piece that I'm going to try and get amplified in the press, uh, an appearance on CNBC, like whatever it is. And you can talk about the thing that you know your market cares about, right? Um, so I, uh, uh, one of SparkToro's investors is the Redfin CEO, Glenn, Glenn Kelman. And Glenn has this like incredible data team and and um, sort of intent team at Redfin, whose whole job is understanding their audience, right? Understanding the the Redfin audience and the real estate markets. What are people talking about? So that whenever Glenn gets invited to, I think he was on like Fox Business or whatever, or or CNBC or whatever it was, right? He can talk about the things that he knows his audience cares about, and then those things get posted. Like you know, there was a a video piece that went to the top of Hacker News that was like, you know, Redfin CEO talks about the real estate market and some of the incentive problems in it, or, you know, all the housing and real estate subreddits are talking about his interview. You can't buy that, right? It's just phenomenal use of audience understanding to get to the core of a problem that your audience is experiencing and then answering that with data and content of all kinds and earning amplification and reach because of it. Organic, like you're not paying a dime to basically have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on, on Reddit basically saying like, oh, that, that Redfin guy, he really knows what he's talking about. He's really solving my problem. I'm glad you're mentioning Reddit because I could so easily see pushback coming from certain CEOs, even like heads of sales where they'll say, well, I mean, our audience like isn't spending time on Reddit. Like maybe they they have a personal stuff and they're reading stuff, but they're they're doing their business stuff on LinkedIn and they're doing that. And audience research will expose all of these other channels that are like the fun version of themselves or whatever you want to call it. How do you challenge something like that coming up? I mean, uh, I've seen that come up less and less. I think that stats-minded folks kind of look at the... Um, you know, world of social media usage and and they kind of go, oh, wow, e even the least used channel, whatever that might be in my field, probably has 10 or 15% of my audience in there, right? No matter how archaic or old school or backwards the industry might be, you can still point to online media, online networks and say, well, Yes, a good portion of them are there, right? The most active ones, the ones who care most about their career development, the ones who are often in the um, 
kind of in the, the striver set or the positions of influence, they are paying attention to these channels indirectly or directly, right? Either they are or people who work for them are. So it's, it's getting t- really tough. You know, maybe 10 years ago, there were people who were making the argument like, oh, well, my audience isn't on Twitter. Friends, like, you know, 90 million of uh, Americans are on Twitter and... I think it's it's a very high percentage of people making over 100k a year. Mm. So so probably you know a good portion of your audience is on Twitter. 100% no way. Right? 70% okay that might be aggressive. More than 30% definitely. D- doesn't matter who they are. You know, and this this holds true across all sorts of these um sets, right? So, you know, Reddit, YouTube, LinkedIn, Pinterest. I mean, you know, you can uh, you can look at the the Pew Internet Market Internet Research and American Life Project stats, and you know, get some get some good data there. On that note, though, like so, like we'll take marketers for example. They're obviously on Twitter. They're obviously on places like TikTok. There's a strong argument to me that the stuff that they're listening to on TikTok is probably parodies of or satire of marketing on Twitter. They're venting like nobody's business. How do you use information like that where, okay, I've identified that my audience is having conversations about that space on Twitter, but they're having a very different kind of conversation where it's more cathartic, it's more tongue in cheek. Like, how do you consume that back from, well, I know on LinkedIn, they're professionally talking about things and they're putting their, their most polished version. How do you disseminate that and use that? Yeah, I, so I don't think... It is necessarily your obligation, nor do I think it's the best way to go about it to basically to say, um, let me go find the whatever most popular, most influential accounts, channels, conversations on a particular network, and then mimic them. That I, I don't I don't like that strategy. I don't think that's particularly usable. What I love doing is saying, this is who we are as a brand. This is how we're going to be on every channel we participate in. These are the two or three channels that right now feel to us like the best match for the kind of content that we create, most paid attention to by the audience that we want to reach, and where uh, the type of message that we're sending matches the platform. To be honest, that's pretty rarely TikTok. TikTok has tons of users, but for a lot of B2B marketing, I mean, I'll tell you a, a brief anecdote about TikTok. So. There are some there are some like marketing influencers on TikTok, right? People who have big audiences and occasionally occasionally a piece will go viral. I think we've had we've had two uh, different TikTok, whatever creators, influencers, whatever you want to call them, who did uh, short videos about Spark Toro that got you know hundred k plus views, lots mm-hmm. of engagement. Um, that the quality of the people coming from those videos was very poor, quite abusive to our systems, hmm. um, really a big headache and and no, uh, I would say no valuable um, use case for us, right? Like, it, yes, you know, 10,000 plus people visited that one day that, you know, the, the TikTok, this was like, uh, I think in May, April or May. We had sort of like, you know, someone got a quarter million views with a video about Spark Toro. She actually showed off the tool beautifully. Like the video is great. I, I couldn't have asked for a better endorsement. 
And then we got a ton of people that signed up with like fu at gmail.com. You know? <laughs> and it was just, and you know, I hate spark Toro at yahoo.com. And, uh, you know, our systems were overwhelmed by just abuse and people writing in and being angry. And we were like, Oh, this market is not where we want to be. Let's, let's not have a TikTok strategy. <laughs> like we don't, we don't want to reach the people who are interested in marketing on TikTok right now, at least, right? It's not, not a good match for us. And we're not sure. We don't think these are professional marketers who do audience research at scale and are kind of seriously trying to understand their group of people. That's, there's no, I'm not just saying there's anything wrong with them, but they're not our crowd. Um, whereas, you know, a video on LinkedIn that someone does, or even a short post on LinkedIn, um, tweets, uh, posts on Facebook groups, posts on Reddit, they do very well for us, right? They bring in right kinds of audiences um, who, you know, are informed about the product. So it's just a matter of um, matching your message to your medium. I, I don't think it's about copying, you know, whatever the style is. You don't need mm -hmm. to make freaking, I don't know, dance trend videos about your company. <laughs> like, just stop. You've used a term that was really interesting to me, which was sources of influence versus influencers. <laughs> and I would love for you to expand on that because this this feels right on the nose of what you're saying here. Yeah. Uh, so, Leo, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word influencer, for better or worse, right? I think most most folks have an association with what that means. So, conventionally attractive person with like six pack, six pack abs does lots of push ups poses on a beach without a shirt on, holding your product, you pay them $500. I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. And that is reductive, right? There, there are influencers who are, who are more than that, but that um, fits with how a lot of culture and verbiage and language has come to describe influencers. And so I almost never try and use that word when I'm referring to, for example, um, a popular industry publication in the chemical engineering field. Mm -hmm. Because nobody, nobody thinks influencer when they think of, oh, well, the editor of, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is, mechanical engineering today. <laughs> but that's not an influencer. I mean, yes, it is. That is an influential person. That is a person who has influence on the audience that you want to reach. And that publication as a whole, never mind the individual, has influence on the audience that you want to reach. But we don't call them an influencer because influencer has come to mean this other thing. So I use sources of influence because that is the, you know, a broad term that can mean many different kinds of publications and events and, and people and organizations. Um, and that's what your marketing strategy strategy should be about. You don't, I don't like this tack, you know, um, first shoot, then aim. That makes no <laughs> sense to me, right? Audience research is all about, well, let's, let's aim at the group of people that we want to reach and the, the publications that we want to reach them through, the sources of influence that we know resonate with them, that they trust and pay attention to. And then we will fire our shot um, and, and try to get coverage or, or pay for advertising or whatever we're going to do with them that's going to reach our group of people. So I want to take what you said, actually, and switch gears a little bit. The output of this audience research 
I have been on the side of buyer personas more often than I have cared to be, but that that often feels like, okay, I've done my research. Now, how do I consolidate it and what form does it take? And very often it takes the form of, well, James is 27 years old and he's a marketing manager and he likes to uh, skate on the weekends or something to that effect. And it it feels either A, potentially discriminatory yeah. and and biasing towards a very specific type of person but also it it feels like a kind of a useless output of all of this work and i know you obviously are not on the side of buyer personas but i'm curious of what what should it look like what should the output of research be yeah so i i really like this idea my colleague um amanda natividad uh espouses and, and wrote a blog post about called audience personas where essentially you say we are trying to reach these kinds of people and they have these statistical um, sort of attributes, behaviors, demographics, psychographics, interests, rather than here is one reductive stereotyped persona of an alliterative named human being who doesn't, who's fictional and doesn't exist, but might be more memorable to the you know, product and marketing team. I, mm -hmm. So the, the the whole idea behind personas, right? Buyer personas, customer personas initially was how do we as whatever executives or researchers get our product people, our designer and our developers and our, you know, product creators and all that kind of stuff. How do we get them to remember and think about the customer while they're building the product? And I find it, incredibly insulting that all they could think of was, well, let's give them an alliterative name like Marketing Mary or, you know, whatever, Jumpin' Jake. And and then we'll, um, you know, whatever, Chemistry Chad, like, and, and then we will, we will take uh, that person and we'll try and give them kind of a fake story to represent them. Maybe it'll come from data, right? It might be data informed. So, you know, in a lot of cases, for example, they will make the buyer persona um, male or female based on whether they think they have more men or more women in the audience. Uh -huh. But you could be talking about like, oh, well, our audience is 53% uh, women approximately. So let's make our buyer persona a woman. I, I think I think you're really underestimating your team. I think product folks, marketing folks, anyone who sees a persona can reasonably say, oh, okay, well, you know, we're whatever, we have 47% uh, men and we have 51% women and 2% non-binary or other. Let's make a product that doesn't pander to a gender because mm -hmm. that's stereotyping. And also our market is close to 50-50. So we'd be really doing ourselves a disservice, right? And, you know, for whatever reason in the 20th century, people were like, oh, it's 51% women. We'll make it pink. <laughs> and that was, that was considered like <laughs> product marketing, you know? Okay. So we all know that's dumb. <laughs> let's, let, let's evolve beyond that. Um, but yeah, I, I like the idea of audience personas because then instead you have a, uh, you can, you can sort of say like, oh, this is our target audience for the subscription product of, of this particular price. We're going to, we're going to call this audience, the, um, professional chemical engineer audience. And we're going to show the gender distribution. We're going to show the geographic distribution. And we're going to show the age distribution and the education distribution. And we're going to show their common behaviors. They tend to read these four publications. They tend to uh, follow these 10 people on social media accounts across one, one or more networks. 
they tend to be heavier users of uh, in order LinkedIn, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, then TikTok, then maybe Pinterest, then maybe, I don't know, Quora, whatever it is, right? And so we're, we're going to present that data not as here's one person and here's what kind of ice cream flavor they like and how many dogs they own, mm-hmm. but here's statistical information that you can use in incredible and pragmatic, right? Tactically pragmatic ways. So if I know they pay attention to that publication, I can go listen to that publication. I can go read it and I can get a sense of the industry, which is so much more useful than, you know, marketing Mary has two kids or whatever it is. (laughs) Speaking on publications, I think one of the, one of the biggest challenges with research, especially in, in, B2B is that it gets done once and then it sits there forever and then it, it you're running on 10-year-old data. And channels change all the time. Publications come and go. Podcasts show up and some never make it beyond 10 episodes. How often should, and I mean should being the first term, someone be updating research in order to take advantage of what has come up, what has changed, what is moving, what is obsolete? Frustratingly, I don't think there's one answer to this question. I think it depends on what you're doing and why. So for example, if you're, you know, if you're a PR professional in-house and your job is placement of content pieces and you're, you know, advising Glenn over at Redfin and all that kind of stuff, you probably should be redoing your and and updating your research kind of monthly at least. What are the new trends? What's the new hashtag? Which subreddits are getting popular around real estate investing? Am I paying attention to those? Are there any new journals out there? Is there a podcaster who's on the rise? Is there some YouTube person who's like really influential in this space? Are there a bunch of websites that are rising in the search results? Like all that kind of stuff is useful to pay attention to, keep on top of month over month. It's part of your core job. You're doing that regularly. You want to have that in front of you. If you are a strategic marketer whose job is sort of crafting the overall strategy of like, okay, what are we going to do with our brand in 2023? What it, generally speaking, are we trying to reach? I think you can honestly get away with it once a year, maybe every six months, but I think that's fine. I don't think you need to refresh your audience research monthly or even quarterly. And I, we actually see a ton of this behavior, Liam, inside Spark. I mean, it's not great for our bottom line, but I'm glad to see it, right? Lots of people will sign up, do a bunch of research in one month, quit, come back in six months or a year, sign up again, do their research again, which is fine. Like we we built it for this use case, right? We intentionally have it that way. And that's, it, it works just great, right? So I don't, I'm not a person who's like, oh, you have to be doing this all the time. Audience research should not be an onerous task that's like weeks of work. In my opinion, you should be able to uh, design a survey in a day or less and get it shipped out via your email list and put up on your social channels or run it through whatever you want. If you want to pay for like Qualtrics or SurveyMonkey Audience or something like that and schedule a couple dozen interviews from the results of that survey and then run some audience research at scale through tools like you know SparkToro or SimilarWeb or BrandWatch or whatever you want to use. I don't know. That should be, maybe that's two or three days of work. Hopefully it doesn't even take up the whole day. So, you know, this is not a, um, this is not an onerous thing. It should be additive 
to your you know, day-to-day types of work. And then you can lean on that model for whatever, a month or six months or a year and refer back to it and sort of be like, okay, this, this is going on here. And um, how, how are we doing against what, what we, the message we said we were going to create and amplify and make resonate with our, uh, with our core audience. And kind of on, particularly on niche things, I, I'm curious if you have a point of view on this. So if you're putting together research and you're looking at sources of influence that people are spending time on and you identify, okay, these are the large accounts, giant followings, high frequency publishing. These are some niche ones that have small followings, less frequent. How much of a balance or, or how do you kind of diversify that group? Like how much should you go after large volume, all I need is to get one mention from these people or a response and I'm golden and it's yeah. viral versus I'm going to try and get 10 different micro influence accounts. Um, I, I think this is, again, it's pretty situational to me. It's um, a lot of it is about, I would say who you are and what your capabilities for reach are. So if you're you know, you're a marketer um, at an in-house brand. The brand is reasonably small to mid-size. Sort of, you know, PR pitches, getting coverage from anybody, excuse me, is challenging. Yeah, I mean, I think you can start small and then grow, right? Start with the easier pitches, the the smaller, you know, accounts. Reach out, see what works. Refine and hone your pitch, refine and hone your message, refine and hone your content. Um, and over time, you kind of get good at it. And then, hey, what do you know? Six months in, a year in, I'm feeling confident. I've had a bunch of successes under my belt. We've got some nice coverage out there. So some people might have heard of us. Now I'm going to reach out to some of these people that I have connected with in the past and say, hey, could you introduce me to owner of that big YouTube channel that, you know, has a lot? Of, I saw you were on their show. Like, I would love to be connected. Would you feel comfortable recommending me to this podcast host? Could I int- get an introduction to the editor for this, you know, website um, mm. publication? Could hey, this conference organizer is putting something together. I saw you were a speaker there. Like you built up a little bit of a network now, so now you now you can sort of get those warm intros, hopefully too. So th- this is my kind of strategy. It's very scrappy and startupy um, for bigger brands and and larger budgets. A lot of times, this is just about advertising. In which case go to town, right? Like reach out to the big <laughs> podcast, see how much they want for a sponsorship. If you like the price, you like the reach, you like their numbers, you pay, right? Yeah. Work, work, works fine. Um, same thing for YouTube channels, same thing for an email newsletter. A bunch of email newsletters are now really great places to sponsor because you can get kind of... Um, it's nice because a lot of the time there's a filter from the owner of the email newsletter. And so they won't just take anybody, which means that if you get through the filter process, you almost get a near editorial endorsement, even though it's clearly marked as an ad and you're paying. Um, there's a few podcasts that have started accepting money for guests, um, which hmm. I think there was a big Bloomberg piece about it over the weekend, which I was surprised about. I hadn't seen that before. Um, there was even a couple podcasts that I've been on that charge guests now. And I was like, oh, wow, that is (laughs) unique. I don't know how well it works. I haven't tested it out, but certainly that 
you know, that that's that's an um, opportunity for some people and skeevy to other people. Right. Mm -hmm. I think there's kind of a, um, some issues there, but we're also entering a, I think like a generational philosophy shift around this where like younger folks, people who've been creators on social platforms for a long time, don't think any worse of people who accept money for the, you know, editorial endorsements that right. they make. So, you know, hmm. how about it? The last place I'd like to go with this is just sticking on that startup scrappy thing. Okay. I think research can often feel like it's this thing that I need to allocate time and budget and I need a certain amount of team. And, you know, for especially early companies, maybe there's only like one or two people on the team. Maybe it's yeah. a sole marketer. What does getting started with look like? Like, where can you begin that is effective enough that you're still getting benefit from? What does it look like to be scrappy and be doing research? Okay. Um, so I, I'm often asked the question about like, where, where do you start with this thing? And I think the best, the best advice that I've got, especially if you're a tiny team and you're sort of doing 10 things and marketing is only one of the things that you have to do or, or marketing through sources of influence is certainly only one of the things. So I would recommend find the intersection between an area where you can provide unique value. So meaning um, maybe you are a phenomenal whatever, photographer or illustrator, or you make cool comics, or you're a great writer um, and you love the email newsletter format, or you're a good podcast guest and you're, you make for interesting conversation over, over video and, and audio, uh, or maybe you are a great data researcher, right? And you, you've got a bunch of cool data in your business, um, or you're someone who crowdsources information really well, it, whatever it could be, right? So a place where you can provide unique value layered over uh, a place, places where your audience actually pays attention, right? So that, that that's both channel and individual source. And obviously you need to do your, your audience research to figure that out. And then the third one it has got to be um, place where you have personal passion and interest. And if you find the intersection of these, I can provide unique value here that, that my competitors don't or aren't or, or can't for some reason, my audience actually pays attention there. And uh, I am personally interested in, like I kind of get energy when I go to Twitter and interact with people or gosh, TikTok really sucks energy for me. Okay, I'm not gonna spend time there. Uh, that's just an entertainment network for me. Or gosh, you know, I love creating for uh, YouTube and video stuff, or I hate that. I don't ever wanna be on camera. I, you know, um, I like to write quietly in my introvert basement. Like phenomenal, right? You you figure out what those things are. And then at the intersection of those, I would urge you to just do a couple dozen experiments. Like, hey, I know I'm good at this. I know I can provide unique value here. I know my audience pays attention there. What are 12 things I could do? Okay, I'm gonna come up with a list. Eh, like number one, the best, right? Let, let's just run down the list and, and I'm gonna try these things. I'm gonna experiment with them. It could be advertising, it could be content marketing, it could be social media marketing. Maybe it's just raw networking. Maybe it's speaking at an event. Maybe it's pitching a podcast, like whatever it is, go start to go down that list. And you'll probably find something that is um, enjoyable for you, like interesting. You get more value out of it than just the marketing message. And you will also almost certainly uh, experience some brand lift from it, right? So you'll be able to see, hey, gosh, that 
that's going nicely. I, if I could do one of those a week or one of those a month, that would really turn into something because it compounds over time. I, I need to, I need to invest more there. Let me go, let me go do that some more. And you'll find one of those in those, in those first you know, top 10, top 12. That's a fantastic answer. I absolutely love that. It's funny. You, it sounds so obvious, but the most compelling and energetic type of content is the one that you personally have energy for and passion yeah. towards. Oh my God. Have you ever seen someone who's like, I hate doing, you know, whatever YouTube interviews with people, but I'm so good at it. No, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't happen, right? Ugh. I hate Instagram, but gosh, I really do make great posts there. It's not, <laughs> not the way it goes. I love that answer. And I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. I am so appreciative of the time. Giant fan of Spark Toro. And I really enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, right back at you, Liam. Thank you for having me. <laughs>